Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ ministry in the United Church of Christ. You may remember La Muna from one of our previous episodes. Well, she just wrote a reflection piece for Encuentros Latinx called Five Loaves and Two Fish that you can now find on ucc.org. Encuentros Latinx posts monthly short reflections for spiritual contemplation, so go check them out if devotional reading is part of your spiritual practice. I've got a book recommendation for you today, Transcendent Kingdom by Yajiasi. It's about a woman named Gifty who's the daughter of Ghanaian immigrants and is currently a neuroscience PhD candidate. But she comes from a strong Pentecostal background, a mother struggling with mental health issues and a family tragedy that, over the course of her childhood and growing up, upended Gifty's absolute faith in God. Gifty is now forced to confront all of this when her mother enters into her worst spell with her mental health issues in many, many years. This is a phenomenal novel, and Gifty's story reminds me so much of the faith journeys that many of my guests have shared on this podcast. Speaking of guests, today you'll hear my conversation with RJ Robles, which spans from an incident with biting ants in Puerto Rico to an expansion and weaving together of multiple spiritualities. It's quite a ride challenging every barrier of faith and gender, so let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Sure. My name is RJ Robles, and my uh, gender pronouns are he, they, them, or ella in Spanish. Awesome. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? Um, Puerto Rico, also known as Borinquen, mm-hmm. um, and my people are known as Boricuas. Um, and so I am first generation. I'm living in diaspora. And I am of Afro uh, Descendiente, um, Mm -hmm. which basically means I identify as Afro Boricua or Afro Latinx. Awesome. And those of us or those in the audience who are watching the video feed on YouTube can see you are repping with your with your sweater what does that say can't quite see it Uh, it says this is what Boricua looks like love that love that it's a bit of a running joke I don't know if anybody else thinks it's funny except for me but just the sheer number of Puerto Ricans that I've had on this podcast and I say it's not intentional I'm Boricua as well um and it's just it just tends to be like, oh, yeah, there's another Puerto Rican. There's only been 100 Puerto Ricans on this podcast. So um, <laughs> but uh, so what is a good memory that you have of Puerto Rico? Um, honestly, the summer times over there. So growing up, I uh, with my family would go we would try to go every year, if not every other year. And I would spend summers with my grandparents um, and most of my extended family who's still on the island to this day. Um, and some of my favorite, most memorable memories would have to be, 
yeah, those summer times, we would just like hang out entre familia. Um, we would um, gather, have like our like barbecuing or like do like, you know, some carne asada or some like um, lechon and some pernil and make sure that we were, eat, you know, well fed. So abuelita would make sure we had arroz con adule, papa, papa ensalada de papa. She'd make sure we have pasteles. She would make sure we have like all the good food. Um, even if there wasn't necessarily like a holiday or or somebody's birthday or somebody's anniversary, you know, it's just like a time for us to gather as a familia and those memories. I just, <laughs> one funny memory that I do have of spending my summers on the island, my family is from Lares, Puerto Rico. So that is a very uh, revolutionary place, historical place, but it's a place that's really close to home for me, um, given that my entire family is from there on both sides. Um, we're from Barrio Piletas and we're um, from Lares. And so in Lares, that's known as the like uprising of the Puerto Rican revolutionary movement, the Puerto Rican movement for independence. Um, so I do come from a long line of legacies of folks who've been involved in movement, of folks who have um, been campesinos, been jibaros, been folk who um, just like would stand up and like say stuff against the U.S. government. And so one of my favorite kind of hilarious memories was one summer I was there with my family and we were hanging out and I was like, I must have been like seven or 10 years old, but I remember like running around the front of the campo of the of the marquesina and I got off the marquesina and started running like on the grass on la yarda la frente of the front and like I accidentally stepped foot on this like anthill <laughs> and you know the ants in Puerto Rico are no joke they will come at you um so it was like really hot it was my foot was just uh, like on fire I was like I immediately yelled, like all the ants were like biting my foot off. And it was just like, <laughs> it was like having an emergency, like a medical emergency in a campo, which is not ideal because it was going to take a long time for me to get like to the clinic or a local clinic or like the hospital. But um, yeah, and then I remember my abuelita like coming out with like this rag and she was just like, and abuelo just like just like smacks he's not even scared like abuelo just came with his like palm of the hand and just like started smacking the ants off and meanwhile abuela's like with the rag just like just cleaning it all off and you know it was just like hilarious it was hilarious to them and to me afterwards but in that moment i was just like crying and I was upset yeah. <laughs> and I was just like oh no what did I do and then my mom was like see eso es lo que te pasa por estar corriendo por ahí that is hilarious and I'm wondering you know maybe if abuela had gotten the chancla the ants would have just they would have dissipated faster <laughs> right you know? the magical chancla <laughs> yeah um yeah gosh I that reminds me I, one of my trips to Puerto Rico I um I guess I'm I'm second gen. My mom is where I get my side of it from. Um, 
And uh, her father, my abuelo, he was in the military. So he actually, what they were actually kind of moving around a lot. She lived mm-hmm. in Panama for a while. She was actually born in the United States because he was stationed there when she was mm-hmm. born. Um, but uh, so I grew up, I had a lot of family on the island too. I grew up going like every, just about every year. And I remember on one of the trips, we were in Coamo, we were in El Campo and we were at somebody's house having a big meal. And the, I want to call them, I want to call them flying cockroaches. I don't know if that's like the actual like (laughs) name of what they, what they are. Um, I was a little bit traumatized. I, I was like, I don't know how old I was. Still a little enough kid. And I was already afraid of bees. I was in, I'm just not about bees and wasps like in general. And then yeah. there we are outside eating and around the corner of this shed that we're sitting behind, like I'm sitting at the table and I can see this, like, this shed. And then around the corner, this giant thing comes buzzing by. It's making a loud noise. It's got a it's like fat and it's got a, it looks like it has a big stinger. And I was just, I was just not about that at all. And my mom was like, like the cockroaches from El Monte, you know, they're, they're, um, they're feisty, you know, Mm. they like to, they like to go after you. Um, Mostly they like leave people alone, but definitely like at nighttime, they like to come out some more and like play. Yeah. Like you'll find them around the like lights Mm-hmm. so anybody who like leaves like lights on outside at nighttime like they'll be like flying around there with all mm-hmm. the other like bugs and stuff so mm. yeah <laughs> is that your cat it is a cat <laughs> oh my goodness what is the cat's name uh simon i call her simon hi okay. cat so for the uh for the audio listeners um this is a black cat is is she completely black and white black and white baby oh my gosh she listened she just turned her head and looked at the camera that's adorable she's very precious cats are welcome on the podcast and as our uh, animal noises and other um visits that animal friends may have so uh, we we love to see that here um so this this term latinx mm-hmm. how is it that that you personally experience it or relate to it is it something that you embrace is it something that you struggle with because it is there's a lot to unpack with it and yeah. so what is what is your experience with it yeah i would say i both um embrace it uplift it and also wrestle and deeply struggle with it and kind mm-hmm. of disassociate and disidentify with it so part the, the part of me that identifies with it is my first generation like being born in the U.S., being raised in the U.S., and being labeled as Latino, Latina, Latinx, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that feels like, like, knows how important the term is. Like, if anybody calls me Hispanic, I will, like, slap them, because that's mm-hmm. not, that to me is a very colonizing term, mm-hmm. um, and for sure, like, doesn't, um, doesn't create space for the hard conversations of being um, of us as a people identifying with our colonizers, the Spaniards. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't like that term. Definitely. That's the least preferred. Um, but Latinx for me comes out of this, this um, before I can even get to Latinx, right? So we have to look mm-hmm. at Latino or Latina and like Latino, mm-hmm. Latina um, really came from like Latin American, like, 
folks who are from Latin America. And oftentimes it got so pronounced in that way that oftentimes the Caribbean was kind of left off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so folks from the Caribbean, right, those of us who identify as Afro-Caribbean are often kind of left off from the term Latinx or Latino or Latina. I Parts of me embrace it because when I was growing up, I remember like in school filling out like standardized tests and being asked like, what is my race? What is my mm-hmm. ethnicity? And mm-hmm. if there wasn't Puerto Rican, then I would identify as Latino or Hispanic, right? Mm-hmm. And that was important to like make sure I was like representing my people. But also it feels like a term that as far as Latino or Latina, I'll get into Latinx in a second, but mm-hmm. as far as Latino or Latina, it feels like a term that's also kind of, um, for me, um, has a lot of vagueness to it. So it's not really clear on like where folks are from. Like outside of the United States, whenever I'm traveling, there's really like this term is like not known outside of the colloquial United States, right? Mm-hmm. Like colloquial English. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you don't say, you don't go and like appear in Colombia or Venezuela or Cuba or Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and be like, I'm Latino, because they're going to laugh at you, or they're going to be like, what the heck is that, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a U.S. um, invented, created, westernized term um, to um, try to describe and include folks who are from 120 plus countries, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just, it's a lot of us who are just kind of thrown into the mix of the same uh, marker and it doesn't make room for those nuanced conversations. Um, And then I think there's also a way that I've already named that it erases um, and can reify anti-Blackness within our communities. Mm -hmm. So I, at this point in my life, um, I always kind of wrestled with marking white as my as my race because that's just not I'm not white mm-hmm. and um, I would mark black Latinx Puerto Rican um, on the like U.S. census and you know if there was Afro Caribbean that'd be even better or Afro Latinx great mm-hmm. um, but you know for me it's like both my Boricuanes is both indigenous and black. It's Black and Indigenous, and I cannot separate the two mm-hmm. um, because I see it in my family. Those are my ancestors. Those are my spirit guides. Those are people who are part of my family's legacy and formation and folks who have formed me and helped raise me, right? So, like, mm-hmm. my abuela's negra, my um, mama is negra, and my dad is more of the, like, light-skinned, fair-skinned, Boricuas. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both Boricuas, but their skin color are different. And so mm-hmm. at this point, like I tell folks like Boricuas come in any colors and any flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes it's like hard to pick out who's Boricua. Mm-hmm. Um, I typically know folks if they're talking in Spanish, like I can tell like, ah, oh, I said Boricua just mm-hmm. based off of accents yeah. um, or styles or things like that or mannerisms mm-hmm. or even like inside jokes to the community. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, really... For me, so I embrace like Afro-Boricua, soy Afro-Indígena, eh, a Boricua descent, or soy un Afrodescendente, a Boricua mm-hmm. descent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, try to identify in those ways. And then if I have to, more vaguely, Afro-Latinx. Um, Latinx, for me, another part of the conversation that's interesting, and this is where my like queerness and transness comes into play, is that Latinx, the X at the end, 
And sometimes people say Latine with the Mm -hmm. E at the end Mm -hmm. was actually created in community by community for community. So what do Mm -hmm. I mean by that? I mean to say that the whole movement to create a more um, gender inclusive, non-gendered, feminine or masculine ending to Latino or Latina, right? Like O for masculine, A for feminine, um, was actually a push by folks in the LGBTQ community, was actually a push led by queer and trans Latinx people themselves. So this was actually a push before it became like, so like monetized in the academy, in academia and academic spaces and academic institutions and higher ed spaces. This was actually a term that came from the street where folks were like starting to recognize, hey, I'm non-binary or hey, I'm a part of the trans community or hey, I'm gender non-conforming, I'm gender queer, I'm a gender fucker, I'm a gender blender, like bending person. And, you know, when we talk in Spanish, it's such a gendered, gender binary colonized language because Spanish is a colonized language, just Mm -hmm. like English is. Um, And so when we say things like hermano or hermana, we're actually continuing to erase non-binary people from language itself and from being named as people. Um, And so I tend to say hermanex Mm -hmm. um, or hermane Mm -hmm. um, when I am speaking of um, non-binary folks. And so as somebody who identifies within the community as transmasculine, a center of trans experience, but also of non-binary experience, um, I use the term Latinx and that's where it makes the most sense for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a fantastic answer. And I always love holding space for people to articulate that type of experience with this term because on the one hand it is becoming so much more commonplace in some respects but that's also bringing so many challenges to the term and so many misunderstandings of where the term comes from how the term is used and there is a risk of the meaning of it being uh being cheapened for um, sure for for ease of, uh, ease of use, although of course, ease of use still is important because uh, publications and, and newspapers and, and book publishers need standard ways of what words they're going to use and all this kind of stuff. So it's definitely important, I think, to continue to highlight everybody's way of entering into what this term does. And to also leave space for those who who really do even reject it. I've had people on here that completely reject it. And, mm-hmm. and that's fine. I think that's important to highlight that, um, especially you mentioned with with anti-blackness, how I, mm-hmm. I've, I've had black folks come on this podcast and they're like, Latinx is not that's not my term. Yeah. And I'm like, and yeah. I'm like you know, yeah, Honestly, like, yeah, that's how I feel from time to time. Like I. You know, it's it's different, right? If we're talking about Afro-Latinidad, that's mm-hmm. different versus like if we're just talking about Latinidad, mm-hmm. Latinidad continues to uplift whiteness. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about that enough as a community, right? Mm-hmm. As a bilingual community, as a multiracial, biracial 
community as a community of different generations, right? Of Mm -hmm. being, whether born back in our home countries or being a first, second, third generations. We don't talk about all these different experiences, even with language, right? Mm -hmm. Those of us who don't speak Spanish, who just speak English, those Mm -hmm. of us who maybe speak um, Spanglish, as I like to call it, like Mm -hmm. we don't, there's not enough or even our indigenous um, languages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's not enough uh, conversations uh, to be had around like Latinidad continues to reify whiteness and white supremacy mm-hmm. in such a way that it it continues to kind of ostracize Black folks from even within the Latino community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then for folks on the outside who maybe don't, who don't, uh, who don't have that kind of shared um, Latinx experience or upbringing, it can be very difficult to enter these conversations around race, ethnicity, class, and then you add class, gender, mm-hmm. age, ability, disability, and all that sexuality and, mm-hmm. and religion and all this to the mix. And it becomes very difficult to untangle um, white supremacy from a lot of these identities. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, identity is not static. Mm-hmm. It's not stagnant. Um, identities are something we grow into um, that through a process of becoming. And so we're always becoming as people, as human beings, as uh, flesh, right? As mm-hmm. as um, earthlings, as I like to call us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're always in the process of becoming, of healing, of growing, of transforming. Um, and being transformed is so much of... Um, and helping folks transform and be a, an active part of um, organizing, being an active role of agitating, educating, that's that's where my work is at. And so mm-hmm. I love to talk about these things and make sure to like connect the dots for folks because these are often conversations that I'm a part of because I'm in community where folks are having these conversations and or where we're reacting or responding perhaps through direct actions through community bail funds, through different interventions to um, prevent the state sanctioned forms of violence from continuing to occur and and take on um, as a form of attempted genocide against our people. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite quite a lot to unpack there. And and there is what I'm what I'm hearing is one of the roots of, of this um, is some experience of of spirituality. And so I would love to hear about your spirituality and, and religion, your journey with it. Um, how, maybe how it's changed over, over the years, how it's evolved, how it, how it feeds into what it is that you do. Yeah. So thank you for asking. Um, I have a long experience, a long faith journey, spiritual journey, religious journey, um, for this conversation, the terms that I mostly identify with is spiritual um, and or faith journey. So those are the terms that I'll be using. Mm-hmm. Um, so using I statement, right, I can only speak from my experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, grew up kind of a mixture of Latino Catholic in the United States mm-hmm. for some time. And then my family left uh, the Catholic Church and just stopped going they started going to like Pentecostal churches. They started going to non-denominational churches, mm-hmm. um, where it was predominantly black and brown churches. Um, I was raised in Chicago, where at that time, back in the 90s, early thousands, 
There was just like a lot of um, gentrification, displacement, economic uh, displacements were occurring. I was raised in Humboldt Park, which is uh, Chicago's Puerto Rican neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember going down the street, down Division um, to uh, La Casa de Capitero at some point, which is like the Carpenter's House. It was one of the churches I ended up going to and just like trying to find my place, um, but while still feeling very... Um, still feeling like out of place, right? So I was trying to find my place and also feeling very out of place and out of sync with the church. I remember just like the amount of times that I would hear um, folks being talked about very negatively. It was just like very judgmental Christians, right? So it was very like, it was about anything, but especially like, woo, girl, like if you were pregnant, Mm. like at a young age, if you had an abortion, Definitely, if you were LGBTQ, you were going to hell. You're already in hell. You're an abomination to God, to Christ, um, to spirit, to the Holy Spirit. Like, you are, like, desecrating your body. If you're transgender, you're, like, your holy temple. Like, I heard, like, homosexuality is sinful. Like, I just, I got the whole gamut of Mm -hmm. spiritual, what I like to call a name and others have as well, spiritual uh, trauma and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I walked away from my faith for a long time because from Christianity altogether and started to identify more as agnostic or atheist. And then I fell in love with my first sweetheart, who was kind of my like high school, college sweetheart um, at the beginning. And I um, converted to Islam and took my shahada and started practicing for about two years um, as a closeted like person um, because the local mosque that we were attending, there was just like no space for LGBTQ folks. Mm-hmm. Um, they had just created space for Spanish speaking Muslims. Um, and so I was starting to go to those gatherings, to prayers on Friday uh, and make duas and just like, um, get more like enriched and and included and involved in Islam. And I remember as a Muslimin, just having, still wrestling with God, still wrestling through my prayers, through my practices. I'm just like, I don't know what to do around my like sexuality, my gender. Like at that point in time, I had been raised as a girl. Mm-hmm. And so I was embracing womanhood. Mm-hmm. I was starting to like wear hijab and I was like, no, this there's something about this that's like still doesn't fit, right? Like I had known and had dated by that point, like both girls and boys. I had dated like men and women. I had, you know, been out as like bisexual, but there was still something that I couldn't quite like grasp or like put my hands on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so little did I know there began my long and extensive transition journey. Mm. Um, So um, before I get to talking about my transition journey, um, because it relates to my spiritual journey as well, mm-hmm. um, I remember um, practicing um, Islam for about two years and then with my partner at the time, and she was queer and Muslim and hijabi and from Jordan and um, may her memory be a blessing, mm-hmm. uh, peace be upon her because she passed away. She was um uh, murdered. And mm-hmm. so after that kind of very traumatic experience in my life took place when I was 20 years old, 
um, I decided to, again, just like walk away from faith altogether again. Mm. And this time I was walking away from Islam. And mm. obviously due to trauma, <laughs> right. lots of lots of trauma there um, and grief. Um, but grief will have you do things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to just like leave and be just kind of spiritual. So I started to identify as spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was also part of like those millennials who was like, I'm mm-hmm. spiritual, not religious anymore. Yeah. Um, and then I realized in the beginning of college, post her death, that I was actually trans and I came out as genderqueer, non-binary back in 2010. Mm. Um, And so at this point, I've been a part of the trans community for 12 years. um, And my transition journey has been a deeply spiritual journey. Um, I say spiritual, I say faith-filled and fulfilling um, because that's what it's been for me. Um, I am somebody that was so interested in religion, faith, and spirituality that I ended up um, studying uh, minoring in religious studies for undergrad mm-hmm. while I was focusing on a major in gender women's studies mm-hmm. um, and trying to fit the pieces together. And so my senior thesis for undergrad was basically interviewing. Um, I wanted to know what specifically Christian ministers were doing to create spaces for LGBTQ youth mm-hmm. within and outside of the church. And so I ended up interviewing about 80 clergy in Chicago who belong to LGBTQ welcoming and affirming churches, congregations, uh, places of worship, synagogues, um, and mosques who were um, part of that movement within uh, religious spaces to be open and inclusive and welcoming and affirming. And what I found, came to find from that experience was that, wait, like I realized I am interested now in this topic through a very like academic kind of lens. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, what better thing I could, could I do post um, undergrad than to go to divinity school, go to seminary, let me go to seminary. (laughs) And so I came to um, Vanderbilt divinity school and I moved down South to Nashville, Tennessee, and I relocated, just like uprooted my life in Chicago and my upbringing and moved down south to the buckle of the Bible Belt and started going to seminary of all places. And so through working on my Master of Divinity, um, I became the Carpenter Scholar, um, which is my focus is in religion, gender and sexuality. Um, my concentration is in that area. And I started to really wrestle with these topics and these themes and these conversations through uh, theoretical lenses, frameworks, practical frameworks, but also through a theological lens uh, and formation and started to reckon with what does it mean to be LGBTQ and Christian? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be LGBTQ and a person of faith? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be spiritual? Um, And what does it mean specifically for me to be a trans, a cutesy BIPOC person, a trans person of color, and be somebody who embraces spirituality in such a deep, deep rooted sense. Um, and there's a way that Divinity School allowed me to just like get reconnected to my ancestors, to get reconnected to spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I also went on this path and I'm still on the path um, 
of um, Santeria. And so that's where I like started to recall like these experiences in early childhood where I could like hear spirits, where I could just like had these like dreams and these like visions Mm -hmm. and I never could like really talk about it with people in my family because they would think I was crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, And my family, I didn't come from a family that practiced. It just kind of gave that up um, in diaspora. Mm And so, but I remember like my tío and tías in Newark and in Jersey who were like, definitely Santeros. Like, Mm. I remember like going there like every other summer and like opening up my like uh, tío's like boveda and like his room. He had like this entire room of just like dedicated to the orishas and like but that was like never talked about. It was kind of frowned down upon by like my parents. And so, but I became very curious about it when I was um, in divinity school. And so that was part of the work that I was doing was just like deconstructing everything that I was like raised with and trying to construct um, and transform and live into uh, more of my spiritualities. And I realized that it's spiritualities, not spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, just like for me, it's um, transmasculinities, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a plural experience. Um, and so I realized that, okay, I need to, I feel this calling, I feel this, this calling to do more with my life to, to give back to people, but to do it in a way that's meaningful, that's life giving, that's sustaining. Um, and I feel led to um, help support the spiritual formation of other peoples. And so I ended up you know, on this like spiritual faith journey walk with my padrino, um, I got my, um, my, I'm not crowned, but I'm on the steps towards, um, in Santeria. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my Ocha red, um, I got my regla de Ocha and, um, you know, I really work with Chango a lot. Um, Chango is my, um, Ile and like, I just like, there's ways that that's still a part of who, who I am as a in this body, in this earthling body, this mm-hmm. physical body. But Chango explains so much of who I am spiritually, so wise at mm-hmm. the core, at the root of my soul. Um, and so I do a lot of ancestor veneration and worship. Um, and by the time I ended up graduating from uh, divinity school, um, I decided to also. I was a part of this like Christian church, um, Disciples of Christ. And I realized like, wait, there's a way that the Disciples of Christ are in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and they tend to be very homophobic and transphobic on the island. And I was like, well, I want to be a part of Disciples of Christ just to like flip it. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to go then embark on a two-year journey. So from 2018 to 2020, in 2020, I was ordained as the first transgender, this open transgender Disciples of Christ minister in the state of Tennessee. And so uh, I still believe I'm the only one. Mm. <laughs> um, and I have ever since been able to pair, uh, just practice syncretism, pair my uh, Christian values and faith beliefs um, as a minister, as a pastor, as a reverend, um, also with my beliefs in the Orishas, my beliefs in spirit ancestors, and my practice in, in root medicine. Hmm. 
that is that is quite quite a journey. Um, I I do love and and I find that I find this to be a trend. Maybe it's partially my own uh, social media circle, and you know, you kind of like like finds like. But I just find that so many LGBTQ folks go headlong into the academic side of religion, and that we have so many of us have wherever it is that we ultimately. Uh, may, may end up or where we find ourselves spiritually. I just know so many people that have taken this this journey of mm-hmm. understanding, um, well, in, in my case and many other cases I know of Christianity, but also other religions, not only in a spiritual sense, but in an academic sense. And it's to it's so we can know what we're talking about in a sense, because there's so much that will come at us to to challenge us we can then have some of the confidence to be like, well, it's, it's not as things are not as orthodox as, as it seems. And I know for, for me personally, some of the joy that I find in my studies is, is just getting to the weird stuff of Christianity. Yeah. Like the side wound of Christ. I've just been laughing at that for the past like two (laughs) weeks. Um, (laughs) laughing at it but also it's like actually really profound like when when you like sit down and think about it the way that i relate to that side wound we could have a whole tangent (laughs) conversation about this is as a wounded healer Hmm. right Mm -hmm. so as a wounded healer i definitely relate to that wounds because i'm like yo that wounds like it might have been like the last thing that happened to their body um Mm-hmm. And we could talk about Jesus' pronouns. That's a whole mm-hmm. nother conversation. Um, that would lead me into a sermon and don't get me started on preaching <laughs> right now. But um, um, that that part right there, right, to get hurt in, in, in such a way um, during somebody's like what's supposed to be this like moment of death and resurrection mm-hmm. um, and ascendancy and mm-hmm. transcendency, right? Mm-hmm. Um that and listen to that word carefully transcendency mm-hmm. yeah that that for me as a wounded healer it helps explain so much of what is my work um in this world and helping to build the kingdom mm-hmm. kingdom yep um so yeah yeah, yeah. And, th- and that is just one of many examples of of things that i think you find when you sort of have that academic desire to to mm-hmm. study faith because because there's some obscure things and I'm sure this this is true of Judaism and, and Islam and every other faith too the really obscure things that didn't get into like the you know the orthodox part that you just can hear about on the streets or whatever mm-hmm. um, and when you get into or, or recognize the existence of those types of things even a, a lot of the orthodox stuff just just seems less rigid and it's mm-hmm. it's like well like sure yeah that's that's what the vast majority of people in this particular faith tradition that's what they hold true but um but they weren't the only ones even even when orthodoxy was like everything else is heretical those other things still cropped up and and existed and and all that um yeah. and that that leads me into you you were talking about your um your syncretism and how you uh how you work with that and so i'm i'm wondering because um 
I, I'm sure that you've been challenged many times on that and particularly in Christian spaces. Syncretism yeah. is one of those those things that like the vast I would say a, a good majority of Christians would be like, that's that's a heresy. So mm -hmm. I'm curious as to how it is that you've navigated those conversations and yeah. and maybe some of the some of the theology that you have around um, how you've reconciled that. Yeah, I mean, the first, so the first thing I want to say in response to that is, number one, first and foremost, don't attack somebody else's cultures and traditions unless you have any sort of level of proximity. And even if you're in proximity to it, you're not the person who is practicing. You're not the person who is um, a part of that community. So if you're an outsider to the community, I really don't think you have a voice or a say. Right. Um, as somebody who is a practitioner, spiritual practitioner, um, it's important for me to name that people who are outside of uh, Santeria don't understand, regardless of if they're Christian or not, whatever mm -hmm. religious or spiritual identity, um, don't understand that this is this is a community of believers. It takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication. It takes a lot of practice. And I mean, like practice, like day in day out like rituals um it takes a lot of courage and bravery to um be in relation to a padrino it takes a lot of vulnerability to open up along the steps of the way of the spiritual walk and journey um to to literally like have your heart on your sleeve um, because you're being read spiritually right mm -hmm. by others you're being um led into uh, kind of communion with the ancestors and spirit guides. And I'm being led by like my spiritual, my guardian angel. I'm being led by um, my like family's ancestors. I'm being led by just the ones that I fucks with, right? Because mm -hmm. there are some that you should not be messing with out mm -hmm. here. And we should know, we need to know the difference. We need to be better at like knowing the difference that there are some ancestors who just didn't do their work of healing and those are not the ones we need to be messing with or uplifting, right? Mm -hmm. There's also ancestors that um, some of us uplift, even within the community of Santeria, that have continued to replicate white supremacy. And that's a whole nother conversation to have mm -hmm. as well around how white supremacy and cis-heteronormativity can show up in Santeria communities. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very real because it took me such a long time to find a house um, where I could um, be in communion with other Santeros and other godchildren and like my siblings and my sisters and my brothers and realize that this is a space for me, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a queer person, as a trans person, this is also a place for me. Mm -hmm. um, and because there's so many houses out there that are so like deeply, not to talk shit about anybody, right? Mm -hmm. But just to name that, it's, it's a fact that there are a lot of, there are some, I'll put it that way, there are some communities within this world that are very led by the cishets, are very led by and driven by cisgender people, by heterosexual people, and that are in, intentional or inclusive of queer and trans folks. Um, and that's been a part of the work that within the community we have been trying to um, raise awareness of and raise consciousness of. Um, 
So just to let you in on some of the some of the conversations that are, have been ongoing and that this work is not just my work. There have been folks that have come before me that I have to give credit to, to them for, for having paved the way so that I could be here today, right? Like I don't just have a seat at the table because I made a seat. It's because other people made and carved that way for me. Right. Um, And so I always have to give credit to being in conversation with my elders. And for me, my elders include my Taino elders, Taino Ti, Mm -hmm. but it also includes my Afro uh, elders, my elders who who are Afro indigenous, my elders who um, who are um, my Babalaos, my elders who are my trans elders who have just made the way for me to even exist, right? Like my existence mm-hmm. is resistance. Um, who said that? Jenny Gutierrez said that, an amazing trans woman Latina that I just want to uplift her work anytime mm-hmm. I have the possibility to uplift because she gave me a, that theological lens. What I see as theological, my existence is resistance. That is theological. That is a theological claim, right? Mm-hmm. Mi existir is resistir. That is a theological and a spiritual claim that is rooted in community. Um, and so I just wanted to like name that and uplift that and share that and reflect mm-hmm. back on some of that and what I've learned in movement um, and in being in community. Um, yeah. That, that's fantastic. And, and I love, um, I always enjoy just being witness to the way that trans folks in particular experience and also embody their spirituality. Um, whether it's, uh, whether it's somebody who has many spiritualities like yourself or, or other trans folks that I know who are more, more or less more squarely in, in, in a Christian space or in more of a, of a singular religion. Um, there is, there is just something about trans theology in particular that has, that has so much, so much life and richness to offer. Um, and, and just the, just, just going into drawing from my, my Christian context, like the very basic way that I see it is, is like, okay, so we have this term Imago Dei. And we say that we say that God created man and woman, that God is neither man, man or woman. And, and then I think that in, all of what as human beings we can witness within creation is a little bit of what the reality of God is like. Not that we always see the full picture, but, but just a little bit. And so what is somebody's transition journey than a witness to maybe not the complete full picture of Mm -hmm. how, how God is, is gender, but just, it's, it's a way it's an experience and a journey that God provides walk some people through. And then for those of us who don't go through it, we can bear witness to that. And we can see just a little taste from seeing that experience of, okay, this is, this is one small aspect of what God is like. And we should be amazed just like as, just as, as like a a cisgender person like that. I think about that, like a, a, a lot with, um, various just transgender people that I've known. Some I've seen pre transition through their transit, through like their transition journey. And I just, I just think about, and then it just like, and so I think about that and I'm like, and then, and I think about people who, you know, want to continue to be transphobic and want to continue to, 
um, to hold transphobic theology. And I'm like, wow, you're really denying yourself the ability to witness an aspect of what God is like. Right, a, a, right. a very specific way of what God is is like, and it's just like. Here's what here's what <laughs> here's what a lot of folks don't want to hear. Trans folks are divine. Trans folks are sacred. Trans folks are beautiful. Trans folks are literally like a mago day, like in all the sense mm-hmm. of that word. Yeah. Um, of that phrase. Mm -hmm. And when we look at scripture, right. um, I'm going to get a little preachy here, but when you look at scripture, because you, you referenced it in your definition of Imago Dei. And for those of you who don't know, Imago Dei is the image of God made in the image of God. So the original text is in Hebrew and the original before that was in Aramaic. So now it's being translated to like English and then thousands, uh, hundreds of years of translations, we get what we got in the Mm -hmm. Bible. Right. Um, and that there's still so many different interpretations that are still so many different biblical scholars, Hebrew scholars who are doing the work of actively uh, interpreting uh, uh, the, the words in English. Right. So we're still getting at roots. So all this is like still being argued in, in, in that world. Um, but nonetheless, to go back to image of God and Michael Day, scripture says in the beginning, right? Genesis, the creation story. There are two creation stories. A lot of people don't know that. A lot of mm-hmm. Christians I've spoken to do not know that. And as a minister, it is my job, especially as a trans minister, it is my duty to let folks know, like, do you realize that there are two creation stories, two mm-hmm. creation narratives in the Bible? And what does that mean? Right? Which one do you like kind of appease to more often? Um, and more often than not, you hear like Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. That is the creation story That is that that a lot of these phobic homophobic and transphobic uh, Christians kind of lead in with, um, but they dismiss the first one. And the first one is simple. God creates like the water, separates it from the mountains. God creates the animals, separates blah, 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 Mm -hmm. day and night, blah, 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 right? Uh, The seven days of creation or the six days and the seventh is rest and Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Um, And then God creates humans. It says God creates humans, and this is where Imago Dei comes from because it's in God's image. And what a lot of people don't realize is the original text, it's not Adam. We're not talking about Adam from the second chapter. We're talking about Adama. Mm-hmm. And Adama in Hebrew means earthling creature, mm-hmm. means human being. So I do believe it is my faith, it is my theological belief here that through the work of trans theology that I'm able to understand the first human being as trans, Mm. as trans celestial, as trans spiritual. I'm able to understand that human being as an embodiment of all of um, humans Mm. um, and its diversity and its multiplicities. Mm. Um, And so that's something that um, I see and I have to do the work. We have to do the work, uh, the hermeneutical work of, of coming at the scripture with what what a lot of scholars and theologians call and people of faith call a hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm-hmm. So 
please always have to encourage folks who are listening to this podcast later um, to just come at scripture with an open mind, but also this hermeneutic of suspicion, like question. It is okay to question. It is okay to interrogate. It is okay to deconstruct your own faith, right? If you're learning here something new today about what we've been talking about, that's great. Take something and go your, do your homework, do your research, um, don't just talk to like your pastor at this one church you've been going to your entire life. No, get outside of that community. Talk to others. Fellowship, right? Uh, God says where where there's one, there's two, there's me, right? Like mm-hmm. go fellowship with people, be amongst the people and talk with people who are different from you, who look different from you, who identify different from you, who have a different background than you do. Um, because that's the beauty, right? God created differences for a reason. I don't think it's 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 out of uh, inconvenience uh, for us. I think it's actually to help us heal. It's actually to help us embrace differences and and to uh, embrace each other along the process that that is so called this life. Um, and so that's that's what I would say. You also reminded me to go back to something earlier that this journey of syncretism and this journey of um, being trans is is a rite of passage. Hmm. It's a it's my rite of passage, so no one gets to take that away from me. Mm-hmm. I get to claim my rite of passage, and I get to reclaim my time, mm-hmm. and I get to do that in this lifetime. And I do believe that that goes in alignment and is in complete alignment, divine alignment with trans liberation now. Mm. Very, very well said. And and so with this, with this now, what is. What is this work that you're doing now? What are what are some of the the efforts, the organizing, the the different uh, things that you're doing that folks can know about? Yeah, um, I am currently. So my work lies in the intersections of healing justice, spiritual coaching, formation, and social work um, and ministry. So there's a lot of moving pieces, but it's basically I'm a movement chaplain. Um, I am a minister by training, I'm vocation, and I'm also a social worker. Um, so I currently, my work is with two um, nonprofit, with one nonprofit agency and with a hospital. So I work locally for a hospital, um, for a children's hospital that, um, as a mental health specialist. So I provide mental health support to children um, who are anywhere from the ages of six to the ages of 18, who are at the hospital seeking access to mental health care and treatment. Um, and so I provide that support to them when they're like getting checked in, um, when they're uh, spending days at the hospital. Um, I just continue to provide that that support there. The other role that I have is as a family support specialist. So one of my roles with this nonprofit agency Um, that I work at is to provide um, support for unaccompanied minors and their sponsor families. So I'm working within um, unaccompanied minors and within the Office of um, Refugee and Resettlement to make sure that minors who came, who crossed the border, who came unaccompanied can be reunified with sponsor families and have a safe place to to call home and, and to be raised. Um, and so in all of that work, and that's that's my paid work, I do some side contract work um, as well. So I'm a healing justice coach for 
uh, independent contractor where I do healing justice coaching for trans youth of color through an organization called the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network um, in Qten. And so in Qten is a healing justice organization that is black led um, and started by Erica Woodland. And Erica and I have been working together for the last couple of years um, along with a, an organization, a nonprofit called the GSA Network. Um, and so I work with the council there of young trans folks who really need that additional support, especially during the times of COVID, um, to really check in month to month basis um, where they can access me as their healing coach. And I hold sessions with them. I do rituals with them. I hold space for them and just do that emotional, deep, like shadow work. Um, so that that's what excites me. Um, I also serve the church in two roles officially. So I am uh, on the council. It's a four-year appointment for something called the Disciples LGBTQ Alliance, um, also known as Disciples Alliance Q. Um, we are a council, kind of like a Think of it as a nonprofit organization within the denomination of Disciples of Christ. Um, so we represent LGBTQ Disciples of Christ um, folks within the church. And so I um, am in currently in my second year of that council. And from there, I do things like virtual puppets, virtual puppet supply, which means I, I do virtual preaching gigs. Um, I um, provide pastoral care support to different congregations across the United States. Um, I'm in community and supporting the launch of um, the first Latino, Latinx, um, LGBTQ welcoming and inclusive disciples of Christ congregation in the United States. So there's different parts of my work that I do there. Um, and this is just all volunteer. This is what makes up my like ministry. Um, and then I also, within the United Church of Christ um, denomination, the DOC is in, in alignment or in partnership with the UCC. Mm -hmm. um, so with the United Church of Christ, I currently sit on the Encuentros Latino Advisory Committee Council. So mm -hmm. um, I provide feedback there and support for Latinx um, religious leadership. So that is an amount like the totality of my work and what it looks like right now. It's basically in the fields of healing justice, mental health, pastoral care, and ministry. Wonderful. And is there any uh, social media uh, accounts that people can, uh, can follow you at? For sure. So I always love to give folks my Instagram page. Feel free to follow me on Instagram. It's Boy Regan Joy and Boy as in B O I Regan Joy. Um, that is my um, my name on Instagram. You can also follow me on Facebook, R J Robles. Um, but yeah, I am a proud Afro Indigenous Boricua trans boy. Uh, mental health specialist, a healing coach, a spiritista, a minister, and here at your service. And so if you have any questions um, after listening to this podcast, feel free to reach out. Um, and I would love to remain uh, in conversation with you. I'm hoping to at some point launch my like website and kind of get my own uh, coaching gigs uh, going from there. But until then, um, you can find me on Instagram. Wonderful. And now this is maybe going to be a little bit of, of a loaded question, but just to wrap things up with final reflections, what, 
what to you would it really look like for churches or other religious communities to really be inclusive of Latinx folks? What does that look like in in your opinion? For me, um, we get oftentimes so caught up and stuck in this conversation about inclusivity. Mm -hmm. I don't just want to be included because for me, inclusivity is oftentimes an afterthought. Like, oh, I've already got this congregation. I've already got this group of followers or, or people, lay people. And now all of a sudden, boop, I thought about Latinx people. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. like, I don't want to be your afterthought. If you're already in that process at that point where I am your afterthought, we are your afterthought, then you've got some serious questions and things to wrestle with, right? Before you can even reach out to folks in the community to my 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 advice two cents real quick advice for for folks who are in that position right now is to then reach out to latinx ministers mm-hmm. first before you reach out to latinx people in your community mm-hmm. right reach out to latinx ministers first so that they can be your conversation partners and can also be um, if they have the time and space and also receive coins to do so, can be your consultation partners, can be your accountability partners, can be your conversation partners. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're at a point where you're thinking about, okay, well, I do have some people of color, I do have some Latinx people here, but we don't really know how to like include them as far as like the different programming or areas of worship or ministries that we're trying to like do, or like I can't get the the folks to like attend certain certain events um, from the church or stuff like that, I would say be intentional about how you um, market these events, right? So like be intentional. Uh, things like day and time will matter a lot, right? You're talking about Latinx people. Like we're busy working. We're busy like with our families. We're busy going out. We're busy living our lives. And so I would say just like be mindful of the days that are important for the community and how you want to show up for the community, right? Like it's not just important to show up for like Latinx History Month, which mm-hmm. I believe every congregation should know when is Latinx History Month mm-hmm. and also Black History Month. Mm-hmm. Um, but folks should know like Trans Day Visibility. Folks should know, which we just celebrated. Folks should know Trans Day of Remembrance. Folks should know these conversations need to be intersectional. Right. So it's not just about one identity over another. It's about, you know, at the end of the day, because if I were to come to your church or your religious community or spiritual uh, 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 community, I can't split my identities up. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to choose my like transness over my Afro Latinidad. I'm not going to choose my Boricuaness over my queerness. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to cut this is a full package, honey. That's a full <laughs> package. So, what you're going to get is a full package. And so I need you to think about the full package of folks who are in your communities or folks that you're trying to do that outreach to. Fantastic. We will wrap it up there. You gave us so much food for thought. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so, so much for sharing your experience and and sharing your insights. Ashe, thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.